0: You're listening to Wormcasts by Parabos, a podcast about worms, fluke, flies, lice, ticks and more. We go beyond the jargon into what really matters and how you can get on top of these costly problems. We'll help you get better production, improve animal welfare and help that bottom line. Hi, I'm Dr Susan Swaney, And I'm Ian Campbell. And welcome to Wormcasts today we're going to be talking through some of the jargon and language that we use whenever we talk about internal parasites. Often as vets and parasitologists, we use some big words and some big concepts, and we assume everybody knows what what we're talking about, but obviously they don't. So we're going to go back to basics, and we'll call this the Code Breaker podcast.
1: The language they use is enough to put you off learning the stuff. If you're not in the know, your knowledge can't grow and the research just gets really tough. Susan, you thought for this early episode it might be worth sorting out the terminology around internal parasites. It seems that as vets or parasitologists, you can get carried away with your own language and assume that everybody knows what you're talking about. They don't necessarily know at all. Also, there are some diagnostic tools that you use, and I thought we might look at these too and get you to explain the importance of them and their uses.
0: That sounds good, Ian, and I'm happy to give it a shot.
1: Okay, firstly on names. Worms have common and scientific names, don't they? That's the reality, but how important is it to know which worms we're dealing with?
0: scientific names are really about avoiding confusion although ironically there is some confusion because they do change them every now and again but they're unambiguous and uh, you actually know the species so they're not going to go away and we think they're pretty important things to uh, to try and use if you can. Um, so if we're talking about that, where we can understand then the treatments that are specific to those, the timing, maybe the choice of product, and also the implication of that specific parasite. So for instance, if we're talking about Barber's pole worm or Hermonchus contortus, as it's also known, then we're, um, we understand that that's a specific worm and it has particular properties. And then some of the other nematodes are Telodorsagia, trichostrongylus and Nematodirus. And these latter worms make up a group called the scar worms, um, but they're all nematodes. So if you actually want to differentiate the types of parasites that we'll probably be talking about, in those nematodes we have uh, the Barbus pole worm or Homuncus contortus, which is a blood-sucking worm. And then we have those scar worms, which I've already mentioned Telodorsagia, Trichostrongylus, and Nematodirus. And they live on the gut mucosa. Then there's the trematodes, which are the fluke. And fluke are really not actually a worm at all. They look like a flattened out slug. And they live in the liver once they've migrated from the intestine. And lastly, we have the cestodes. So the cestodes are the tapeworms, and the most common one is monesia. And even though it's a really large worm and quite often seen in the faeces because it lives in the large bowel and, and sections of it drop off and come out in the faeces, it's probably one of the ones that we're least concerned about. So
1: that's the complete list?
0: No, unfortunately not, Ian. There's uh, a lot more worms out there. There's, um, Of course, there's things like the lung worms and then there's a lot of worms in the large bowel as well. And um, there's many others that we haven't mentioned, but these are the important ones that I think are worth discussing first up.
1: Okay, so we monitor these, don't we, by doing worm egg counts or faecal egg counts. Is there any difference between a worm egg count and a faecal egg count?
0: Only the age of the person who's saying it. A faecal egg count's the old nomenclature, so it's the one that I'm probably more familiar with, Um, but these days we talk about worm egg counts. So uh, initially, obviously, a faecal egg count's talking about the number of eggs in the faeces of the sheep, or the cow, or the goat, or whatever, but the worm egg count is actually just describing it as how many worm eggs do you find in that faeces, so it's actually the same thing but it's possibly worth uh, mentioning in amongst this what what it actually is. So normally uh, you can do individual worm egg counts or you can do bulk worm egg counts, and bulk worm egg counts are the most common ones used, and you actually take samples from anything from 10 to 40 animals in a mob. So the, the greater number you take, the better, because you're actually going to get a much more representative sample and in that situation, you can, if you're going to take a large number, you would be doing a bulk count. But if you're doing individuals, you're probably only going to take, say, 10. At the end of the day, those are a small sam- sample of, say, 2 grams is taken from each of those. And it's processed in a way and then counted using a specific slide that tells you how many eggs per gram.
1: So that gives a result as eggs per gram. Presumably that's proportionate to the number of worms in the host?
0: Yes, it is. They've actually tried to find that proportion. It's not a a precise science by any means, but it's definitely the best way that we can work out a ballpark figure about what the contamination levels are, both in the animal and also on the pasture. And it's the one that we can then gauge to assess whether or not an animal needs to be um, drenched.
1: Okay, does it give you the type of worm or the species of worm?
0: Very limited information on that. Um, with nematodirus, we can actually specifically see the type of uh, egg. It's, it's a larger egg and it has a, a coating and it's much easier to um, differentiate. But the others, say homonchus, Teladorsagia, the Trichostrongylus, etc., you can't pick those apart really. You're listening to Wormcasts, brought to you by Parabos. If you have any questions you feel we can help you with, or if you'd like to share an experience you've had dealing with a specific parasite, or if you have a topic you'd like to discuss, please drop us a line on the email, wormcasts at parabos.com.au. So we've
1: said it was important to, uh, to know what worms are dealing with, so if we need to know the species of worms, what can we do?
0: So there are some labs um, that have what they call fluorescent microscopes and they can use a dye and that's taken up particularly by Hermonchus contortus, so Barb's poleworm. And they can therefore differentiate that particular parasite from, or that parasite's eggs, I should say, from the other eggs on the slide. So they can do a specific count for Barber's pole worm. Not a lot of labs use that technology. Uh, More commonly, uh, the uh, larval culture um, is done and then a differentiation of those particular larvae. So they grow the eggs until they hatch, and once they've got the larvae, they then look at those under the microscope again and they can actually differentiate what each of those uh, larvae species are and give you a count of what proportion of each of the species are there. In addition to that, there's another method that can be used, which is the total worm count. This is uh, obviously requires sacrificing the animal or you could do it on a, an animal that it's already died and you do it as a post-mortem. And that situation, you uh, they actually wash out all the contents of the abomasum, the fourth stomach, and the first uh, couple of metres of the intestine. And then that, those are um, made up to a known uh, content, and, and then a sample, subsample of that is taken, and the uh, parasites present are counted and also differentiated from each other. So you actually know how many worms there are present in each of the parts of the gut and what the species are and uh, and what numbers there are.
1: So are there any other lab tests available?
0: Oh, well, I haven't mentioned things like um, there's some blood tests that can be done to look for fluke. Uh, You can actually do a milk test for fluke also that's looking for antigens in that that situation.
1: That's in cattle?
0: Uh, Sheep and cattle. Uh, The milk test is mostly only done in cattle. It's done in dairy cattle. And then there's a faecal antigen testing, which is obviously done from faeces. And that's actually a a newer test and a very, uh, very good test for fluke um, in both sheep and cattle. Um, on top of that there's uh, if you don't go and do worm um, worm egg counts for fluke or for uh, lungworm, you do actually have to specify that because those tests are actually quite different to a standard worm egg count. So you need to specify that you wanted to check for fluke and you wanted to fluke worm egg count. Or if you're doing lung worm, then that's normally done when you're working with your vet because they've made a diagnosis to that effect and you would specify that that's what you're looking for too in that situation.
1: Okay, so then we've got worm egg count reduction tests. Perhaps before we talk about uh, worm egg count reduction trials, we should uh, perhaps define what we mean by resistance
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So if we're talking about resistance, we need to recognise that, first of all, we're talking in this situation about the resistance of the worm, not of the sheep, but of the worm. So the resistance means that the worm has actually survived the drench that should have actually killed it. And it's an inherited resistance and that means that that worm will pass it on to its offspring. So each time you drench, you're basically building up that population that can survive. And um, so you increase that within your population and thus resistance develops and becomes a bigger problem. So the other thing is to, to think about resistant sheep and in that situation we're actually talking about the sheep's ability to be resistant to parasites. So although we're using the same word, resistance, we're talking about a whole different concept. We're talking about the sheep's ability to be resistant to parasites and in that situation you might be saying, for instance, that mature weathers are more resistant to parasites than weaners or you could be saying that one breed of sheep is more resistant to parasites than another breed or that some particular strain of merino is more resistant than others. So you do have variation within individual flocks. You have variation within uh, breeds and strains. And that, But that in that situation, we're talking about the sheep's ability to prevent parasites from becoming established. And that's not what we're really talking about today.
1: No, we're actually talking about drench tests, so we better get back to them.
0: Fair comment. So after the break, we'll be back to talk about drench tests.
1: Worm infection is the most costly disease of sheep and goats. With an estimated respective yearly cost of $436 million, the major cost of worm infection is from Lost Production. WormBoss provides the latest information about worms and management tools, including drench decision guides and regional worm control programs to help you solve your current worm problem, implement an effective integrated worm control program and manage drench resistance. Find out more at paraboss.com.au.
0: Welcome back to Worm Cuts. Let's get started on drench tests. We're actually looking at... How effective that drench is in your flock on your property with your parasites and in that situation we're going to allocate sheep to uh, mobs of say 10 to 15 and we're going to drench them with different drenches and we're going to leave one mob undrenched but to start all this you need to know that that mob of sheep does have a significant parasite burden so Uh, just for the sake of it, I'll tell you that I like that to be around 300 eggs per gram before you start the test. And then once we've drenched each of those groups with a different drench and left the controls undrenched, we retest them in 10 to 14 days. And from those results, we can actually work out what percentage efficacy each of those drenches have by looking at the control group and looking at the groups that have been treated and comparing the treatment group to that control group and that's actually our best uh, way of assessing a drench and we know now that efficacy has to be 98% or more for a drench to be actually considered to be an effective drench.
1: That sounds good. How, how does that compare with doing a drench check?
0: Good point. So a drench check is a different test again Uh, A drench test is a full test where you're actually looking at all the drenches that you you might want to use or have used, whereas a drench check is something that you do for that specific drench that you've given to the whole mob at a single time. And the important thing with this is that it'll actually work out how effective that drench has been on that occasion, and as long as you um, do it correctly and you get your sample before and then your sample again afterwards.
1: So it's important to um to do a check before you drench the sheep rather than um uh, just do the drench check after you've already drenched.
0: That's absolutely right because if you don't do that then you might say for instance get a result back of say 50 eggs per gram and um we'd say well that's okay you know it's it's killed most of the worms that's not a bad load we're we're happy enough with that. But if you started off with 500 eggs per gram and then you actually worked out the efficacy of that, that means that you've only killed 90% and that's not an effective drench. Whereas if you'd started off with a worm count of, say, 2,500 eggs per gram, then you've actually killed 98%. So it's still classified as an effective drench.
1: The reality, I guess, is that a lot of farmers don't actually do either of those checks, the drench test or the worm reduction trial. What level of resistance would you expect a farmer to be able to recognize if they actually weren't doing those tests?
0: Well they've done a lot of testing around the world of this Ian, and they actually say that it's probably about sixty percent efficacy before a farmer even begins to notice um, any any effect of the um, drench dropping off and that's by that stage there can be you know substantial um, drop in production. In fact, Western Australia, they did a trial and there was a 12 kilogram difference between the lambs that had been given an effective drench and the ones that hadn't and even at that level neither the farmer nor the researchers could pick the two mobs apart. So you can be losing huge amounts of production without seeing anything at all. So it's actually a really insidious thing and the other thing is that it comes on so slowly that you just don't don't see it.
1: Okay, well there's another term I thought you might like to describe for us and that's refugia. W- what is refugia and why does it
0: matter? So refugia comes from the word refuge and it's the population of worms uh, uh, that it's described as a population of worms that are actually not exposed to the drench at that particular time and therefore they aren't being that aren't having that increasing pressure on them to develop more resistance in that particular population and it's an important thing because we we know we've got parasites on in the sheep and we've also got parasites in the pasture And refugia can obviously come from either of those sources, but it's important that it is considered because it's probably one of the best tools that we have in trying to reduce the development of resistance. And the drier the climate or the district is, the less likely we are to have refugia on the pastures. So the more critical it is to be thinking about it and whether or not we need to be including it in the animals. So for those who live in the sort of high rainfall areas, for instance, uh, southeastern Australia most of the time, then you probably don't always have to be thinking about refugia because naturally there's going to be a fair bit on your pastures. But if you're talking about areas like the Wimmera or Western Australia, which have very hot and very dry summers, then it's highly unlikely that many parasites will survive those extreme conditions over summer. And so you really do have to start to think about retaining some refugia when you do do the drenching.
1: I heard one farmer say to me that refugia is the animals jump out of the race and the ones that drop their head under the sheep in front, so you can't easily drench them.
0: <laughs> that's that's a very convenient way to think of it, and I suppose if you don't want to have to drench those ones, then that's uh, something you might like to think as refugia. But the problem with it is that you, um, it's not really a properly controlled way of measuring refugia and, and or, or the way that you're going to... Uh, contain it. So I think you have to make sure that you're, you're doing it in an informed way rather than the sheep making the choice for you.
1: Okay. So how would you summarise this discussion today?
0: I suppose the important thing is not to be put off jargon. Um, it's to understand what the tests are, are that are available to you and um, and to talk to your local laboratory about it. And so the main tests that we've really covered today are the worm egg count and we've discussed the fact that you can do those for nematodes, you can do a separate one for fluke and you can also do it for lungworm as well. We've also mentioned drench checks which is actually where you're going to look at a worm egg count prior to drenching and another one after drenching to work out how effective that specific drench has been for that mob on your farm on that date. And then, of course, we've also got the drench test, which is the used to be called the faecal egg count reduction test. And that is looking at all the drenches that you may have used and may want to use in the future and actually working out the efficacy of each of the groups so that you can develop a plan. And you should be doing that every two to three years. So uh, apart from that... I'm not sure. I think that's possibly covered it, don't you, Ian? Is there anything else you can think of? No, I
1: think for a summary, that's um, pretty (laughs) brief.
0: Thanks very much. In the next episode, we'll be talking about the importance of quarantine drenching from a personal perspective. You've been listening to Wormcasts, a podcast for Parabos, funded by Australian Wool Innovation, Meat and Livestock Australia and the University of New England. Paraboss provides information in managing parasites and worms in sheep, goats, and cattle. For more information, visit paraboss.com.au.